morning again. Yeah, it's good to be here. I was a little disappointed on our drive down this morning because as we drove down, I noticed something that was different from today, from Wednesday. That was that there were actually some orange trees now. <laughs> when, I went, when I went home Wednesday, there were no orange trees. There were very, very, very few of them. And when we came down this morning, I had noticed that the trees had started to turn. So I'm glad that I made my appointment in October towards the end of the month to put the snow tires on because I'm sure that will come one more time uh, for all of us. Anyhow, it is good to be here this morning. A great. I wish I had have gotten the notice from Phil and from Dave. I, I would have wore cowboy boots and a gray shirt and black pants. Um, John didn't get the notice either, I see. But uh, it, uh, continue to remember those who are usually with us and aren't this morning um, as they uh, work through uh, health issues of their own. Do you remember as a child, and, and I don't know if you did this in your neighborhood, but do you make it, remember making promises and oaths and vows that you would take uh, to say that you were going to tell the truth? Some of you may have locked your pinkies together and done a pinky oath or a, a pinky swear. Okay, I promise I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I'll see it through. Pinky swears date back as, as far as the 1860s in North America. And there's evidence that the, the pinky swear or pinky promise actually originated in, in Japan. It's used in India. It's used in various parts of Europe. And if you didn't make pinky promises, they weren't popular in your neighborhood. Perhaps you may have heard or used the rhyme, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. However, you heard of that, haven't you, Paul? Oh yeah, because you grew up in Hamilton like I did. So, however, if you were to cross your fingers, it seemed to negate that promise that you just made, that vow, which sounds a whole lot better than, hey, I lied. So, looking back to my childhood on Hamilton Mountain before we moved out to the country, I conclude that Hamilton Mountain had a credibility gap, had an integrity gap in regards to how we were training or they were training their young children. I've often thought life would be a lot more interesting if that idiom, you know the idiom, liar, liar, pants on fire, if it actually worked, um, it would make life a whole lot more interesting. In, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, there's a top seven list. And, and this is not a top seven list that you want anything to do with. In this top seven list, lying ends up on the list twice, in position number two and six. And I'm going to read that for you. It's in Proverbs, chapter 6, if you want to follow along. We're not going to spend much time there. Verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, so arrogance. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. 
feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. That's not a list any of us want to be on. Our world, though, suffers a credibility gap. Ipsos did a survey earlier this year. The results of the survey found this. Only one-third of Canadians believe most people can be trusted. We have a trust factor with each other, and maybe, and possibly for good reason. In 2015, Ryerson University, now Metropolitan, Toronto Metropolitan, conducted a survey that only 13% of the population trust politicians. The only profession worse than politicians were lobbyists at 9%. Political staffers didn't fare much better than their employers. They came in at 16%. CEOs and union leaders tied at 22%. And rounding out the top five, or, or perhaps we'd better say the, the bottom five, were journalists. Only 33% of the people trusted journalists. And according to Psychology Today, in 2019, in Canada, a total of 25% of the people reported lying or telling a lie at least once or twice on average every day. And another 1% state they lied at least 20 times a day. We could go on and on with the stats to talk about our dishonesty. On social media, such sites as LinkedIn, HR managers believe that 60% of the resumes submitted contain falsehoods. One last stat, and I, I'm going to read a few lines. It's from ISPAS, and it comes from 2015. I want to read a few lines from their news release. Only one half, 49% of Canadians, say, I always tell the truth when it comes to discussing their finances with others, including their partner or spouse, friends, family, and co-workers. On the other hand, 45% maintain that they are mostly truthful, but do tell small white lies or omissions. Some Canadians, however, admit to not being truthful at all, an exaggerate or lie to make themselves look better, 4%. Or they confess that they're not truthful at all and will lie and tell people they are in great shape when they're not. That represented 2%. So let me clarify this for you. Let me, let me clarify the survey. That survey tells us that 51% admit they are liars. In our world of fake news, legacy media, fact checkers, and social media memes, we have a truth gap. We have a credibility gap. And Jesus in Matthew 5 tells his audience Remember who his audience, audience was? It was apostles, so the twelve, disciples, people who were following him, curious onlookers, and haters, the religious elite that were following him. He's going to tell them that they too have a credibility gap, 
a, a, a truth gap. Let's just open up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your love and Your kindness. And Father, as we engage with Your Word this morning, I pray that each of us will have an open mind and an open heart to allow Your Spirit to take the principles taught here in Matthew, to think them through, to evaluate our own lives through the power of the Spirit, and Father, to apply them where needed. Father, that we might become a wise and discerning people, a people of credibility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So turn with me, if you're not there already, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at the fourth of the six illustrations Jesus uses in this section on the Sermon of the Mount. Now remember, the six that we had to do a little recap here, but remember the six illustrations come after what? They come after verse 20. And what does Jesus say in verse 20? But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of, the, of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So to enter the kingdom of heaven required a righteousness that was greater than the religious elites of the day. And as I've said before, this must have been devastating. It must have been discouraging to the followers of Jesus. If our best don't make the cut, how does the average Jew ever stand a chance? But that was the whole point, wasn't it? The whole point was to tell people they don't make the cut. That you and I don't make the cut. See, without Jesus Christ living in us, without His forgiveness that's offered through the cross in salvation, His death, His burial, His resurrection, without any of that, you and I will miss the kingdom. We even lack, not only we're going to miss the kingdom, but we will lack the power to live out the righteousness of His kingdom here and now. The whole point was to say, you need Christ. You need to know Him and come into relationship with Him. On our Saturday, our Sunday morning at the fairgrounds, you'll recall that we discussed how Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. In our time gathered that morning, we learned that Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 tells the followers of Christ that they are now living and serving a different law, the law of Christ. And that law was revealed to us in an exchange between Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders. They asked Him, oh Lord, what's the greatest commandment? You can find that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And Jesus' answer to them was, was unexpected. They thought He'd come up with one of the Ten Commandments. But that's not what Christ does. Rather, Christ expresses the intent of all the law, the spirit of the law, in two statements. Verse 37 from Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> and He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great command and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
So the, the six illustrations that come after Matthew uh, 5.20 not only serve to point us to our need for Jesus Christ and our lack of the righteousness needed to gain the kingdom, they also serve as illustrations. They serve as illustrations of a reinterpretation of the common interpretation of the law of the day. What was taught by the religious elites? Jesus in the six illustrations reinterprets it. He exposes how their interpretation missed God's intention or falsely represented it completely. So he follows the familiar formula in each of the illustrations. You have heard, but I say. So look with me to Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5:33-37 Again you have heard that it was said of those of old you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn But I say to you do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king and do not take an oath by your head, for you, not, you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's look at the first two verses again, or at least a verse in a little bit. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Verse 33 seems to be a reference to a verse in Leviticus, Leviticus 19.12. And in Leviticus 19.12 we read this, You shall not swear by, the, by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. See, the concept of swearing is that of taking an oath. And oaths, not common in our society. You can still find them. They're used in the court system. People will take an oath and they may swear in the Bible or another religious book. They may simply make a solemn promise to tell the truth. You can also find that oaths or vows are still used when swearing an allegiance to a country or to a flag, possibly to an organization. But for the most part, our system of contract law that's been developed over the centuries has made vows and oaths obsolete. See, the contract serves as the legal binding oath between two parties. It serves to say, this is what I promise to do. You do this, I will do that. Long gone are the days of a simple handshake that sealed the deal. You know, you'd shake the hand, I'll do it. And, and we could count that it would be done. That's long gone. And if you've ever signed a contract, <clears throat> it covers off all the possible loopholes, or at least it's supposed to. Sometimes it seems that they create more loopholes. And usually in the contract, there's an out for both parties. So if something's not going quite right, both parties can leave. O's or vows, though, can be found in Scripture. One of the earliest O's would be that of the blood covenant. If you want to follow along, in Genesis 15, 
that is used as a, to seal a covenant between Abraham and God. Starting in verse 7 of Genesis 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord your God, you who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give to you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now when we read that, the first thought is, wow, Abram lacked faith. But we shouldn't think that. In Isaiah 7, God offers uh, to provide a sign for King Ahaz. And there we find King Ahaz basically brushes God aside and he won't ask for one. So, if you read the text, Abram's never scolded for asking for a sign. John J. Davis, in his book, Paradise to Prison states this, Far from being a symptom of unbelief or doubt, it, wa- it is expressed heartfelt longing to see God fulfill His covenant promises. It is something like this. How will I know this will happen? It's a statement. Okay, Lord, how will I know this will happen? God continues. And He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and lay each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions as far as you you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham, saying to Abraham, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. So as we read this, we think, wow, this is a bloody and strange event. But to them it was normal. It was one way they signified covenants. And under normal circumstances, what would happen is they would cut the animals in half, it would be a bloody mess, and split them and they'd be on each side. And then each party would walk through this mess signifying, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may what happened to the animals happen to me. But did you notice who walked through the animals? Not Abram. Abram did not walk through. He was a spectator for this. Only God 
participates. It's signifying that the, the conditions of the covenant, the outcome of the covenant, are all dependent on God. They were all dependent upon God. It didn't matter what Abram did. God was going to do this. Now the purpose is not to say God must swear upon Himself to fulfill the oath. It was more like God doing this to say, hey, I promise I will do this. I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do. So oaths were common in Scripture. God participated in them as did Jesus in the New Testament. But that leads us to a question then. Is Jesus banning oaths here altogether or vows? Some have interpreted it that way. In the Anabaptist tradition, Mennonite, Amish, and some brethren will refuse oaths altogether or vows. Some in the Jehovah Witness world, based on Matthew 5, will refuse to take an oath too. Quakers will refuse. But is Jesus banning vows and oaths? After all, vows and oaths were part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We just discussed one that God did with Abram. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, He speaks under oath when He's talking to the high priest. So what's going on here? What is He saying? Well, some background will be helpful. Let's look at Leviticus one more time. Leviticus 19.12 You shall not swear by My name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The point of the verses is to keep your vow. If you say you will do it, do it. This over the years became very twisted. Uh, Remember we talked about kids and they were crossing their fingers So if you crossed your fingers, it didn't count. Then I remember that there are other kids that say, okay, I want you to to swear you'll do this. And when you swear, I want you to put your hands out like this so you couldn't cross your fingers. So we were sneaky. We'd cross our legs. So we'd be standing like this, like, well, my legs were crossed. It didn't count. Childish. Very childish. Sometimes we'd try to get sneaky and they'd go, oh, your arms are crossed, but you'd, you'd, you'd cross your legs too so they wouldn't notice those. The Mishnah, a collection of Jewish oral traditions, is a great resource. We learned from there and from other sources that the religious of the day, their teaching concerning O's, well, they had all kinds of loopholes. If you had sworn to the Lord or use the Lord's name in some way connected with your vow and your oath, well, you, you must keep it. But a, a vow or, or swearing on something other than the Lord, well, that was less significant. It was like crossing your fingers. So people would make vows by swearing on their heads or the clouds in the sky. And they had no intention to keep the oath. Once again, it sounds very childish, doesn't it? The other issue with O's is they become commonplace. They were overused for everything. I like how one commentator illustrated, and it was very fitting. We just had the funeral of the Queen this past week. 
And he said, it'd be like going to the, one of the palaces to visit royalty and take the tour. And as, as the tour guide took you around, he would look and he says, oh, here, I, I just want to point out to you the royal stool. And, and over here, we have the royal chair. And over here, there is the royal window. Oh, and underneath the chair, there is the royal dust bunny. I mean, it gets overused after a while. It loses its meaning. It becomes vain. It becomes childish. And that's exactly what had happened to vows. People disdain the truth so much that no one believed anyone when a vow was given. And Jesus was simply saying, enough. Enough, that's it. Stop thinking of these vows as your legal loopholes. Enough. I remember working with a man. He had to stop working. And I was working with him in the office. And he had some mental health issues, uh, extreme anxiety. <clears throat> and he was filing paperwork to go on to the Ontario Disability Support Program. And he had some credit card debt. And he filed the paperwork and everything went through fine. And then we filed the claims on two credit cards uh, because he was paying that, you know, that monthly insurance fee that they try to sucker you in to pay for. Well, he had been paying those monthly fees on his credit cards for insurance. So filed the paperwork for both of those. To one of the credit cards, it was immediately accepted, and then they started paying his balance while he sought out um, medical care for his condition. On another credit card, he was refused. And as we looked and investigated, yes, it was two different credit cards, but it was the same insurance company. It was out of the state. It was the exact same address in Florida where the paperwork went to. We even phoned and talked to them. And guess what? They had their own legal loopholes. The second card was never covered. And he had to go on paying it. I think Matthew 23, if you skip ahead to Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 and 19, also illustrates this point for us starting in verse 16 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that, was made, that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Absolutely childish. Now let's read Matthew 5 with this in mind. The, the frivolous vows that were being made and, and what they were swearing on. Matthew chapter 5, back to 5, verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it is the throne of God. So he can't swear to the clouds because that's God's throne. Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for who can make one hair black, white or black? Jesus is saying, no matter what you swear by, it's all connected to me. It all is connected to me. There's, there's no crossing your fingers to get out of it. I am God and I'm related to anything that you can swear to. Jesus forbids hypocrisy. Stop taking oaths and making vows that you have no intention of keeping. If you've had children, have you ever had them say, yes, I'll do that, mommy or daddy, in their sweet, nice little voice, and then in their sweet, passive-aggressive way, they ignore you altogether? Yes, I will clean my room. Three hours later, you go to the room and nothing's been done. Yes, Dad, I'll take out the garbage. And you awaken at 7 o'clock the next morning to see the garbage truck go right by your house because there's no trash cans at the end of the driveway. As adults, we just come up with more sophisticated reasons why not to be honest. And Jesus calls out the religious elites of the day, of His day, and He calls to the followers of Him, you can and must do better. Verse 37, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I like how the Christian Standard Bible renders the verse. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. The point is very clear. The standard for kingdom living, for all those who call Christ their own, for all those who are disciples, the standard is truth-telling. There should be no credibility gap. There should be no integrity gap. We can't forget our earlier question. Is Jesus banning O's? How do we reconcile His words? Dan Dorinia, a professor of theology at Covenant Theological Seminary, answers this question succinctly for us. Luther and Calvin harmonized the testimony of Scripture by distinguishing public and private speech. In private, they said, disciples should tell the truth so completely that the need for oaths disappears. Yet, since Jesus spoke under oath and God took vows for those who did not know His reliability, disciples can take oaths to ensure those who do not know them. I really think that's the point of it. It's not saying you can never take an oath, but in our private speech, in our dealings with people, we should be known for truth. Jesus is telling us to own our words. No weaseling out of our promises. None of this what I call wordsmithing. You know the art of wordsmithing, don't you? You word it in such a way that you can say to somebody, well, that's not exactly what I mean. 
or I didn't understand you that way. After 10 years of working in youth ministry, it taught me people learn very young how to lie and lie well by sort of a slight of word here or there. Jesus is calling us to mean what we say and say what we mean. There needs to be a consistency between one's words and subsequent, subsequent, subsequent related behaviors or actions. James, 1, 20, James chapter 1, 26 and 27 come to mind. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue and deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I read that from the New Living. If you claim to be religious, if you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is, this is a hard portion of Scripture to teach. One of the reasons is when it comes to this part of application and how we take this into our lives. And the reason for that is I can just imagine as I speak someone thinking in their head, wait a second, is the pastor calling me a liar? That, that just makes it a little more difficult to explore this application, but it's still needed nonetheless. I have read enough articles now and I have studied enough statistics. I have listened to enough conversations. I have counseled enough people to know that the church in general has a credibility gap. And in some corners of Christendom, we blame this on the people that are criticizing us. Oh, they're perse I'm being persecuted. They don't want to hear the criticism without just simply saying, oh, I'm being persecuted. It's an easy way to discredit any criticism. It's convenient. What isn't convenient is to have an honest conversation. How as disciples of Christ, how are we viewed in the world? And I'm not denying that there's reality to John 15.8 when it says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. But at the same time, we cannot make this verse the boogeyman for everything that happens to us. If the world is to hate us, let it hate us for our integrity, not for our dishonesty. Let it hate us for our love and our love for others, not only who are of the same faith, but for the very people that would persecute us. Your love for the person that's next door to you in your neighborhood that lives from a different sexual ethic than yours. Let us be persecuted for shining the light of Christ out into this kingdom of the world that is ever darkening. The honest conversation needs to happen in church leadership too. 
Too many. Too many. The number of pastors caught in sex scandals, stealing money, abusive relationships with their congregation is absolutely sickening. And much of it is covered up. Southern Baptists are having that issue right now. How much was covered up in the past? And it's horrible. And these scandals don't just happen in mainline denominations. They happen in what you and I would call Bible-believing churches. So let's think through some of the ramifications of having credibility and integrity for the church. Honesty for the church means no more bait-and-switch evangelism. That's been around for a long time, and it drives me insane. As an example, men's and women groups will hold events in the church, outreach events, and, they'll, and they never advertise that there is going to be a speaker, a gospel presentation. I can't tell you how many unbelievers I have heard complain about this. I can recall one specifically being invited to an event and coming back and saying, I was held captive. No one told me there was a speaker. They are so ticked and they'll never come to another church event, no matter who invites them. For years, I and another man ran a charity golf tournament through a church in London. And it was no bait and switch. We were up front. We were raising money for Compassion Canada, but it was an outreach event for the church. And we were up front about that all the way through. When someone went coming to the golf tournament, they knew there'd be a speaker. He'd talk about something practical from Scripture, and it was 10 to 12 minutes. And I literally told every speaker, you go over 10 to 12 minutes, and I will stand up and cut you off. And they were amazed. They're amazed that of the men that attended, we'd usually have about 75 men for this, and up to half were unchurched, were not saved. So we'd have 20 to 30 unchurched men out every year. We had one guy at the event every year, and he was so honest, he said this to me one year. He said, you know what? This is probably year five into the seven years that I was involved. You know what? This is the only church I get and I like it. It was a time for us to gather together as men and speak into their lives in a very gentle way. Get to know them on the golf course. Get to know them a little bit as we walked together and as we ate together. And just 10 minutes or so just to talk with them directly. The church of all places should also be known in the community for its honesty and its integrity. When work is done at the church and we agree to pay a bill right away or within 30 days, it should be paid right away. And I know some business guys will stand up and say, well, wait, what about the 30 days? No, pay it right away. You know why? Because if that bill payment comes in late, we just tarnish the name of the Lord. The church should have the reputation of honesty, of paying bills promptly, of being the best place to do business with. I'm not talking about the church being gullible. But the church also shouldn't have a reputation as being cheap. There seems to be in the mind of some Christians this expectation that whenever the church goes out to do business in the community, 
with a believer or unbeliever that they should get a discount. We need to treat people fairly in their businesses. We shouldn't expect a discount from a believer or an unbeliever for the work that they do. If they want to be kind enough for us to give us a discount, wonderful. But we need to remember that we need to pay our own weight because they have people they have to pay for. They have bills in their own home and we don't know what their situation is. So speaking in the church in general terms is really easy. But what about at an individual level? Do I have an, an integrity gap, a credibility gap? Do you have a, a credibility gap? How about with your coworkers? Do you exaggerate the conditions, complain that you're being treated unfairly when really you're not? What about in your neighborhood? Is there a truth gap and your neighbors notice it? We'll hit on this a little bit tonight, but is there a credibility gap in your finances? Are you keeping up as agreed to? Or do you misrepresent yourself by driving a vehicle you really can't afford? I could spend hours on how people, including Christians, create credibility gaps for themselves on how they use the money that the Lord has entrusted them with. But let's go one step further, closer to home. Actually, let me rephrase that. Let's go into your home. Do you have a credibility gap with your children, with your wife, your husband, your parents? Or if you're a child, do you have a credibility gap with mom and dad? See, in the life of a believer, there's no room for pinky swears, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. No. In the life of one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, who has owned up to their own spiritual needs and bankruptcy. According to the law that we read in Galatians, we're to love one another, to love God with our whole heart, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in loving God and loving our neighbor, when we are truthful, we are showing love. Just as I said when we talked about murder, it's loving not to murder your neighbor. It's also loving to tell your neighbor the truth all the time. It's also loving to tell your kids and your spouse the truth all the time. It's also loving to God and to your employer to tell the truth all the time. Do you have such a reputation that if something happened at work, and you gave your word, no, no, this is what happened, that they would go, we can trust that person. There's no credibility gap in their life. Do you have that type of reputation in your community, in your home? You should. And if you don't, there's a problem because you're not being loving. Being truthful means loving. It means caring for people and dealing with them in integrity. Let's just bow in prayer. As you bow your heads, think about that. It's a difficult topic and a difficult subject. But are we men and women of integrity? 
Are we people that when something happens, that they'll just trust what we say because over the years, we have shown that we are credible. Our faith is shown in our honesty. And our honesty shows that we love people so that when they do business with us, they're not concerned about not getting paid. They're not concerned about you being dishonest. They know that you will do what you say. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Father, as we continue to look at these passages and are challenged by Christ's reinterpretation, not of what You intended from the beginning, but how the religious elites had begun to teach this apostate religion to the nation of Israel. Father, help us to look at our neighbors and, and, and our family and, and those people we work with and those people in the community of Lambton Shores. Help us to see that we need to show love to them. And part of that love is to be men and women of integrity. integrity to, to know that we're credible. To know that what we say we will do. So whether they're dealing with us personally or they're dealing with the church as a corporation, that our love is shown in our honesty. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.